little sweaty. Summer has arrived, apparently. Uh, you know, yesterday, uh, Dave mentioned uh, we had a team of people at Schaefer uh, Elementary School just to our east, and I went over there, and uh, it was so hot, man. I really appreciate all of our folks going and, and working on that project. And just so, you know, just so you know, the reason we're involved with those schools, Schaefer and Jefferson, uh, is because those are the two uh, most underfunded schools in DuPage County with the highest number of at-risk kids. And so we've committed to help them in a number of ways. We have mentors working with kids. And this was just a project where they had this courtyard in the middle of the school that was just all grown in and weedy and nasty. And they said, do you think you guys could could clean this up for us, and so we're, we're creating an incredibly beautiful uh, outdoor space for them, but uh, our, our, our group was hot and sweaty yesterday. I saw a few of the folks here. I'm glad to say that they took showers, so uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate the time and, and energy they put in. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12, and as some of you are aware, and Dave mentioned already, we're starting a new series this morning called Seeking to Know in which we are exploring the whole idea of God's will. Because, um, well, life as we know it in 21st century America is filled with endless possibilities and choices. You know, from our, from our youngest moments of life to our golden years, we're faced every day with a myriad of decisions. Some are small and insignificant. Others are serious and life-altering. Um, and for the most part, we don't, sweat the, we don't sweat the small ones, but the big decisions about you know, education, relationships, career, marriage, kids, retirement, those decisions have a way of, of uh, bringing confusion and uh, uncertainty into our experience. And with all the opportunities that we have, with all the options before us, you know, with everything that we could do, everywhere we could go, all the people we could meet, all the places we could live, you know, how can we know what's what and who's who? How do we know really what to do? And then you put a spiritual spin on all that and you add a genuine desire to please, uh, please God and suddenly the pressure to try and discern the will of God uh, comes into play and with it a good dose of anxiety for some folks. I can tell you this, over 26 years of ministry, one of the common questions I hear Christians ask is what is God's will for my life? You know, how do I know what God wants? Can I know what God wants? And so we're going to explore those questions together. And to get started, I want to read something the Apostle Paul wrote in a letter to Christians in the early church who were living in the city of Rome. And it's something that I think serves as a launching pad for for our study. He writes this in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Before we go on, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we're grateful for the opportunity we have again to come together today as, as, your, as your family, as your church, as a community of faith. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we recognize the complexity of our lives and the decisions we face every day, big ones, little ones, and our goal and our desire is to please you. And so I pray that you'd give us insight on, on how to make decisions that are wise and healthy. Uh, I ask in the time that we have this morning that you would remove any distractions from our minds and from this place, that we might be able to focus on what you have to say to us. So teach us, we ask, by the power of your spirit at work. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so um, I'm hitting some milestones in my life these days. Uh, especially in regard to my family. 
Uh, my son, Corey, just graduated from Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Uh, and so he's at home looking for a job, having, hoping to do something in writing and editing. If you know of anything, give me a call because he's eating all my food. Uh, uh, <laughs> No, we're glad that he's, he's, he's done and, and exciting. we're excited for him. Uh, in the next few weeks, my daughter Megan, uh, who has a career in ministry at Northwestern, she turns 26 years old. So I'm kind of wrestling with the fact that I am now the father of two adult children. And it's a weird feeling, man. I mean, the years have, have gone by so fast. And I was thinking back to where, when it all began, when my wife Margie was in labor all night long, and then finally at 7 o'clock in the morning, Megan was born. And uh, the first thing the doctor said was, it's a girl. And the second thing the doctor said is, Ray, come on down here and cut the cord. I'm like, N- what? No. No, I'm not cutting anything. You know, that's why I'm paying you the big bucks. You cut things. I'm going to stay here. And I did. But uh, I, remember, I remember seeing Megan for the first time and, and just feeling so proud. And I remember how the nurses took her and they cleaned her off with a towel. And, and because they wanted a blood sample, they, uh, they poked her heel, her little heel with a needle. And she just screamed and screamed. And I remember how protective I, I felt very suddenly. And I said, hey, how about you bring that needle over here? I'll show you how that feels. You know, this is my kid here you're poking. And so, you know, becoming a father was a, was a defining moment for me. It was a bit overwhelming, really. Uh, three years later, it happened again. This time, I was, I was coaching a boys' high school basketball game. Uh, our team was uh, in the locker room at halftime, and uh, a call came through the athletic office that my wife was in labor. So I had to leave the game. Uh, I rushed home, was pulled over twice by the police. Uh, they, they believed my story. In fact, the second, the second policeman uh, helped me. He followed me to make sure I got home okay. I got Margie, uh, and I, was, I joked around with her. I got, walked in the house, and I, and I said, I can't believe you interrupted our, my basketball game. And she's leaning over the counter. She's like, shut up and get me to the hospital. <laughs> so uh, I did what I was supposed to do. I got her in the car. We got to the hospital. No sooner did we get there than Corey was born. I mean, this kid, he wasted no time. Three hours of labor from start to finish. And in this case, the first thing the doctor says, it's a boy. And the first thing Margie says is, I'm hungry, get me a sandwich. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And, uh, and I remember how the nurses, they were holding Corey and they were cleaning him with a towel. And, and this time I thought I knew what to expect. And so when they started to take him away, I said, hey, you're not going to poke him with a needle, are you? And they said, no. I said, good. They said, we're going to circumcise him. And I, I passed out. <laughs> I'm like, what? Well, that is one big boo-boo you're going to leave there. Come on. When I came to and got off the floor, I went looking for him, and uh, I found him. He was in that big, that big glass terrarium kind of a room, you know, where they keep all the ugly babies, except for the one beautiful one that's yours. And uh, I, re- I stood with my face kind of pressed against the window looking at Corey, and it just dawned on me, I'm a dad again. And uh, I got a son now, I got a daughter and I realized that uh, and, uh, at that moment that what I desired most was to be intimately involved in their lives. And as their father, I wanted to be in close, loving relationship with my children forever, and that's still true. It seems to me that that experience offers us some insight in understanding God's will for us. See, the question we're essentially asking in the series is, what does God want? What does he want? In the church, we have another way of putting it, kind of the religious way of putting it. What is God's will? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you probably realize there's a lot of opinions on this, uh, and there's a number of misconceptions regarding the will of God, which is often viewed as this 
this mystical, esoteric knowledge plan type of, type of thing that we've got to somehow, some way figure out. But that's not really how it is. That's not really how it works. I mean, God is, uh, God's will is not something that's supposed to agitate us uh, or, 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 or give us panic attacks. In fact, it's, I think it's important we recognize that we can't really know any of the specifics of God's will for our lives until we first understand what it is God ultimately wants. But, you know, here's the thing. A lot of people, they spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure it all out. And in some cases, end up treating God like he's a, a cosmic game show host who taunts us to choose between doors number one, two, or three as if taking delight in keeping us in suspense by not letting us know what's behind the doors. That's kind of the way I, view, I viewed God when I first became a Christian. You know, when I, first, when I first accepted Jesus and I started to learn a little bit more about faith, I, I, I was led to believe that God's will is this narrowly defined path uh, for my life that I, needed, that I needed to find and follow every single day, which taken to, taken to its logical extreme leads to absurdity. Because in any given day, a decision could be, do I buy a car today or not? Do I go out the front door or the back door? Does God want me to eat, eat a muffin for breakfast or some eggs? Does, do I put on shoes or sneakers? Do I wear jeans or khakis? Do I roll on the left side of the bed or the right side of the bed? You know, um, what does God want? And early on, I tell you, I used, to get, I used to get anxious about an awful lot of things because I didn't want to screw things up. I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to miss, miss, uh, miss God's will for my life. And I remember one time, after I was a Christian for a while, this guy said to me, he told me that, that he, he believed God had a specific girl chosen just for me. And I'm like, you talk about anxiety. I'm like, what? There are seven billion people in the world. How am, I, how am I supposed to find her? It's like a needle in a haystack. And then there were other decisions, you know, um, big ones. Do I go to grad school or not? And if so, where do I go? Uh, where should I live? What church do I attend? See, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I, this was all new to me, this whole God's will thing. It was all new to me. And as a new believer, I had some serious concerns and serious questions about the whole thing, you know, and what God wanted for me. Uh, I've come a long way in my understanding of that over the years, but I tell you what, there are still times when I do weird things. I do weird things when it comes to knowing God's will. For example, driving down through Glen Ellen uh, uh, recently, I thought, man, I should stop and get some coffee at Starbucks. So I said, Lord, if it's your will for me to get coffee at Starbucks, open a parking spot right in front of the, right in front of the shop. Uh, so I, it was like a miracle. God opened a spot. After five times around the block, there it was right in front of me. I knew God wanted, wanted me to have a latte. You know, it was perfectly clear to me. Don't tell me you guys don't do this stuff. You guys do this stuff, right? Please tell me you do this stuff because I don't want to be the only weird one in the room. Uh, I remember back in, in, in my college days, uh, one weekend I was flying to Boston because I was going to visit Margie. She went to Boston University. And so I was flying up to see her, and I had just finished a course on basic Christianity and how to share your faith, right? So I was all whirling around in my brain, and so I, I get on the plane, and I end up sitting next to this, this young Jewish woman. Her name was Orna Spiegler. She was from Israel. And she noticed I had a, I had a, a, a theology book with me. And so after a couple minutes, we chatted, and she said, uh, I noticed that you're reading theology. Uh, are you a Christian? And I said, uh, yes. And prior to that, I, when I got on the plane, I prayed this prayer, Lord, if you want me to share my faith with someone, give me a sign. 
which is kind of silly to begin with, right? I mean, we all know that, that Jesus wants us to share his love and grace with people in our lives, you know, through our words, our actions. So I knew that, but I had prayed that prayer. So I get down, I'm talking to this, this young woman. She says, are you a Christian? And I'm like, yes. She goes, well, could you tell me more about that? And I said, Lord, is that a sign? Is, that the, is, this, is this the sign here with this woman? Because I have to be sure. If this is the sign, turn the flight attendant into a monkey, you know? <laughs> you know, the reality was I wasn't really looking for a sign. I was looking for an escape route um, because I was kind of anxious about talking about my faith early on. So the point is we all, we all do this kind of stuff, which brings me back to the question, how can we be sure of what God wants, whether it's in the minutia of our lives or in the complexity of our relationships or in the major decisions we have to make? How do we avoid those anxious moments when we ask, is this God's will for me or not? Well, here's some information that um, will hopefully begin to relieve at least some of the anxiety. Because the fact is, God has not left us in the dark. I mean, the fact is, uh, as creator, to a certain degree, uh, God's will is revealed to us through his natural laws. Right? I mean, if, if you're driving your car toward a really sharp curve in the road, engineered to safely handle vehicles traveling, you know, 15 miles an hour, and you hit that turn going 85, uh, inertia kicks in, and you, you are going to go off the road. The law of physics kicks in. It's a law that God has put into place for our benefit. If a Christian and an atheist jump, both jump off a five-story building, who's going to hit the ground? They're both going to hit the ground, right? Because both of them are subject to the law of gravity, another law that God has put into place in operation. So in a, a real general sense, uh, natural law dictates some of God's will for us. But more specifically, much of what God desires for our lives can be found in what has been written. In other words, God, God has revealed his will for us uh, in and through his written law, his word, the scriptures. I mean, the scriptures... Through the scriptures, God provides directions or direction for us uh, on how to live, you know, good, safe, healthy, productive lives. I mean, think about it. As a Christian, you never need to wrestle with the question, uh, God, is it your will for me to steal the barbecue from my neighbor's house? You never have to, you don't have to ask, God, is it your, is your will for me to cheat on my spouse or commit murder or, or to lie to the people around me? Those are prayers you never need to pray because Scripture tells us clearly that, that, that those things are destructive to our lives and to our relationships. God said, don't do it, man. They're hurtful and they're harmful. In fact, Scripture is often, often pretty clear in addressing many of, the, um, the, many of the situations and moral dilemmas in which we find ourselves. And I think that, I think that most of us get that. We, we get that. The part that we're not sure of, you know, the place where we get a little hung up is when it comes to the nitty-gritty particulars of daily life. As we walk through the day, as we interact with people, as we make some decisions, big ones, small ones, what does God want? And, uh, and this, this is where Romans 12 comes in because in these first two verses, uh, I think Paul explains what it is God ultimately wants. Notice, he says, he starts off in verse 1, he says, he says therefore... Which may not seem like a big deal to you, but, but it is a big deal. This, uh, this summer, Margie and I, we, we uh, spent some time in Boston, drove up the coast, east coast, kind of visiting some of our old haunts. Uh, and uh, we stopped at the grad school, my grad school, and we were walking around some of the hallways, and I remember taking classes. And I remember in, in, in the Greek class, the professors would say, whenever you find the word therefore in the text, figure out what it's there for. 
I paid a lot of money for that learning, so I'm gonna, I am going to tell you what this word is there for because it's significant. His, Paul's use of the word is significant because it's a connecting word. It connects, it connects what he's about to say with what he's already said. And if you've ever read the, the letter of Romans, then you know Paul spends the first 11 chapters laying out a very detailed theological explanation of sort of our world and how it works, of how God, of how God our creator, loves us and how he wants the best for us. And how as human beings, we have this rebellious nature. And we, we, we arrogantly ignore what God says is right and good. And we choose to do our own thing. We sin. And sin carries some serious consequences. And yet God has offered to free us from those consequences. To, to rescue us from the judgment that we, we rightfully deserve. Paul affirms that, that God's love and forgiveness is offered to every man, every woman, every child. Jew, Gentile, slave, or free, it makes no difference. He explains how God sent Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. He talks about how Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died the death we deserve to die. And how it's through our faith in Christ as Savior that we're rescued, we're forgiven, we're, we're justified, granted eternal life. It's something we don't deserve. And most certainly it's something we can't earn. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. Paul assures us of that. He says, in the letter he says, all of us are justified freely by God's grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In chapter 11 he says, Even it, uh, he says, and if it is by God's grace that we're saved and rescued, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Works are grace. That's the choice. What is it? Paul says it's all about Grace. It's all about grace. Here's the point. For 11 chapters, Paul lays out the truth of the gospel of Christ, the gospel of grace. That's what makes the gospel, the gospel means good news. It's God's grace that makes the good news so good. And now in chapter 12, he makes his teaching practical. He links together doctrine with daily life. He connects belief with behavior, creed with conduct. Because for Paul, theology wasn't just something that, you know, you wrote about or sit around and, you sat around and contemplated. It was about truth. It was about truth that applies to our lives. It was truth that impacts our lives and changes us. And, uh, and so he writes, therefore, based on everything I just told you, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, i.e. fellow Christians, to view, in view of God's mercy, and the word mercy there in the original language is plural, so it could be, it could be translated in view of God's mercies, and in other words, in view of all that God has done for you, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And see, it's here in this opening statement that I think Paul reveals uh, at least part of the answer to what God, to the question of what God wants. First of all, as followers of Jesus, God wants, Paul says, God wants our bodies. Which I know sounds a little strange to us, but understand, it sounded strange to to many people in the first century as well, because in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was a saying, soma sema esten. It meant the body is a tomb. And that's what the Greek philosopher Plato taught. Plato said, every seeker after wisdom knows that his soul is, is a helpless prisoner, chained hand and foot inside the body, forced to view reality not directly, but only through the prison bars and wallowing in utter ignorance. In other words, Plato believed that the human spirit is imprisoned in our physical bodies from which it longs to escape. For him, 
The body wasn't a big deal. It's not that important. It's not even that good. It's more of a hindrance than anything. It's the spirit that's good. It's the spirit that matters. And that's what a lot of people in the first century world thought. Sometimes it's what we think. Or at least it's what's implied through our words and actions. I mean, because let's be honest, the last thing we think about is giving God our bodies. We like to give God nebulous things, nebulous stuff. We say things like, I gave God my life. I gave God my heart. I gave God my dreams. I gave God my all. Well, that, that, that sounds really nice and spiritual, but what does that really mean? How does that work out? How does that look? What, how's that lived out? I mean, I don't think in all the years uh, in ministry I've ever heard anyone say, I gave God my body, and yet, and yet in view of all that God has done, all of his mercies, that's exactly what Paul urges us to do. Why? Because God has created us as both spiritual and physical beings. And therefore, God cares about both. And sometimes in his writings in the New Testament, Paul refers to our physical bodies as temples of God, right? And as such, God wants to use them, you know, for his kingdom purposes. In fact, in chapter 3 of the letter, Paul makes it clear that, that human brokenness and sin gets revealed through the body. And he gives some examples. He says, he says to his listeners, listen, you know, before we became Christians, our tongues practiced deceit. You know, our lips spewed poison. Our mouths were filled with cursing and bitterness. He says our feet were swift to do evil, and even our hands shed blood. Our eyes were quick to look away from God. In short, he says our sin was and is exposed through the acts of our our physical bodies. Conversely, Paul says, our faith, our righteousness, our commitment to God also gets revealed through the deeds of our bodies. In chapter 6, he writes, So don't offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself, offer your body to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, as Christians, our bodies are to be used to honor and glorify God. See, if we truly accept, believe, and understand all that God has done for us, and all that he says is right and good and healthy and safe and best, then our feet will run from evil and walk according to God's word. Our lips will speak truth. Our tongues will encourage and promote healing. Our mouths will share the news of God's love and grace. Our hands will demonstrate that love and grace and lift up those who have fallen, serving the forgotten and the marginalized. Our arms will embrace those who are lonely and unloved. Our ears will hear the cry of injustice. And our eyes will look to God for strength and wisdom. Understand, Paul says... Our entire bodies, our entire being, material and immaterial, is is important to God and to his kingdom. And the outward physical acts of our bodies reveal inward spiritual realities. And so Paul calls us to offer our, our bodies to God. How? He says, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now think about that for a second. Living sacrifice. Those two words don't go together. It's like jumbo shrimp. It's like pretty ugly. It's like crash landing. You know, the, the oxymorons. He says, living sacrifice. I can tell you this. In the Old Testament system, not many sheep came walking back from the sacrifice. So what is Paul suggesting? He's pressing here the idea that as Christians, we are to put to death the evil acts of our bodies and live righteously with them. Notice Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. 
Here's my Reiki summary. Meaningful, legitimate worship is both a spiritual and a physical thing. In his commentary on this text, um, well-known theologian John Stott wrote, No worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. Or another way to say it, spiritual reality gets expressed and demonstrated uh, through physical activity. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not advocating empty ritual or, or oppressive legalism. He's not doing that at all. We don't offer our bodies to God so that he will love us and graciously accept us. No, no, no. We offer God our bodies in response to God's love and grace and what he's already done for us when we didn't deserve it. Worship is response. See? And one of the things I really I enjoy on Sunday mornings is our, our corporate uh, worship time together when we sing. And, and we, you guys know we have some very talented musicians and vocalists who are committed to helping us you know, express ourselves to God. And I, I, I appreciate Austin Massey being with us to help as well. And, and, but here's the deal. While the music is good and, and the songs are expressive and emotive, it's important we recognize that there's an act of worship far greater and far more pleasing to God than just playing some music and singing. What is it? It's the offering of our bodies to God every day, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Worship doesn't end when we stop singing and we turn off the lights and head out the lobby doors. In some respects, that's where it really begins. True and proper worship continues in the way that we live every day, in the words we speak, the places we go, the things that we do. So with all that said, you tell me, what does God want? He wants your body. But notice, Paul also says God wants our minds. He writes, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And the term that Paul uses that we translate conform carries the idea of something being squeezed into a mold like Play-Doh, easily molded. Now, I don't think any of us in the room will deny the fact that we are influenced by our culture. We are. Every day we're bombarded with opinions and, and attitudes and values. Uh, many of them, uh, not all of them, but many of them run counter to what God says. You know, life in a predominantly uh, secular culture means that we each run the risk of, of being sort of desensitized uh, to, to, to evil and to sin. And sometimes the pressure to conform is, is intense other times it's more subtle. Either way, there's this constant insidious pressure on us to allow our values and our beliefs and our behaviors to be molded and conformed to the world around us. And, and by the way, this, just, this isn't just a 21st century issue. I mean, conformity has always been a struggle for God's people. And that's why God, when he was speaking to Moses and the nation of Israel, he said, hey, in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you guys, don't follow the practices of the people there. Don't conform to their practices. Obey me, God said. It's why Jesus said to his followers who were surrounded by both paganism and religious Phariseeism, he said, don't be like, don't, don't be like either the pagans or the Pharisees, the religious Pharisees, the religious experts. He says, you follow me. And so Paul is simply, he's simply repeating this call to nonconformity. Uh, and it's a call for us as Christians to not be molded by the prevailing culture, but to be what? Transformed. 
And the Greek term Paul uses here is metamorpho. It's from, it's from, from which we get our word, uh, English word metamorphosis. And most of you learned in grade school what metamorphosis means. It refers to a complete and total change. Paul's saying that we are to be fundamentally changed from the inside out, our thinking, our character, our conduct, transformed into the image of godliness as modeled by Jesus himself. See, Paul understood that the value system of our world and that of God's will are often incompatible. And they're often in direct conflict with one another. Whether we're talking about the origin and meaning of life itself, or about how to measure greatness and success, how to respond to evil and injustice, whether the issue is ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, marriage, or anything else, God's will and our world's system can diverge so completely that there really is no possibility of compromise. Transformation is essential. But how does this metamorphosis take place? Well, Paul says, it takes place by what? By the renewing of your mind. In fact, he says it's, it's only through the renewed mind that we're what? Able to test and approve, i.e. discern and appreciate what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail here on how our minds get renewed, but we know from the rest of Scripture that uh, this renewal comes by way of a combination of the Spirit of God and the Word of God at work. In other words, when you become a Christian, when a person becomes a Christian, you know, when, when we acknowledge our sin before God, our failures, our need for God's love and grace, and we accept Christ as Savior, and we experience that love and grace, not only are we forgiven, not only are we granted eternal life, but we're indwelt by the Spirit of God himself, who then begins to carry out the work of regeneration, a spiritual rebirth takes place, which involves the renewal of every part of our humanness that has been tainted by sin, including our minds. Elsewhere, Paul explains, uh, explains it to Christians. He says, he goes, look, the person without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And, and they can't understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. In other words, the work of the Spirit of God, without the work of the Spirit of God, how can anyone ever really hope to fully grasp God's truth? So the renewing of the mind requires the work of God's Spirit, also involves the instruction and application of God's Word, the objective revelation of God's will. Paul once explained it this way. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You guys tracking so far? The idea is that when we put our faith in Jesus, um, our minds, this, this, something changes from the inside out. Our minds get renewed by the indwelling work of the Spirit and, and through the application of God's Word to our lives. A spiritual transformation begins, allowing us to uh, the ability to both desire and discern the will of God. Now, Here's the thing. I'm not so naive to think that on, I am so great at this that in one sitting and 30 minutes on Sunday, I can adequately explain all this to you. We can adequately discuss, comprehend the whole concept of God's will. No way. No way. That's why we're going to take a, a few weeks to study the topic. And even at the end, there's going to be some mystery left over. But uh, we're going we're to take a shot at it, assuming, assuming that most of us in the room want to know and do God's will. I mean, we should. And so suffice it to say, God is not some 
cosmic game show host who gets his jollies out of keeping us anxiously guessing about everything we do and every decision we make. The fact is God has revealed much of his will to us, and uh, we're going to see how that's true as we move through the study. But one thing Paul makes very clear here in Romans 12, at least it's clear to me, is that trying to know God's will without knowing God is going to be frustrating and futile. Because ultimately knowing God's will comes down to relationship with him. And that's why, that's why I pose the question, what does God want most? The answer couldn't be more obvious. He wants your body, he wants your mind. More succinctly put, God wants you. He wants you, all of you, each of you. I mean, right now, God, your heavenly Father, presses his face against the window of heaven, and with a love greater than I could ever feel for my son or daughter, he calls out to you and me. As his children, he says to us, come to me, be with me, get to know me, experience my love and my grace. That's what God longs for more than anything else in the world, to be in close, loving relationship with his children forever. God wants you. I hope you know that. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, I think we're all uh, willing to admit life can be very uh, confusing at times with all the decisions we have to make, choices before us, big ones, little ones, ones that really make not a big difference in our lives, others that change the direction and trajectory of our lives forever. And um, I think as your people, we want, we want to make good decisions. We, we long to know your will for our lives. And yet, um, I think we have to admit that in our, our finiteness, our humanness, we, we're just never going to know everything. And so there are times when we need to trust you. And yet, um, and walk by faith. And yet, you have, in many respects, um, explained your will for us. You've explained how you want us to live in a way that is right and good and healthy and safe and productive. And um, forgive us when we we ignore uh, your word to us and your direction to us. But I pray this morning that we would commit ourselves to um, seeking to know more about this whole will of God thing. Uh, And in humility, Lord, wrestle with the issues together, Uh, listen to what your spirit tells us, Uh, listen to what your word, how your word instructs us, and in the end, uh, offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And we recognize that worship isn't just about what we sing, that the music we play, it's how we live every day as we walk out the doors in the back. I pray this morning as your people, we commit ourselves fully to you, our God, to live as sacrifices to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? So here's the thing, you know, this idea of God's grace, you know, Paul says, see, the works are grace, it can't be both. Religion says it's works. It's going to wear you out, it's going to wear you down, it's going to leave you wanting. Christianity is about the grace of God. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has done for you in Jesus. Understanding that, embracing that, believing it, and following after Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you understand it. So this morning, if you have questions about that, if you have questions about some decisions you have to make in life, 
Uh, some of our prayer team folks will be down here right after we're done. They're willing to talk with you and pray with you, okay? So, so just come on down. They'll be down here. Uh, I want to, uh, next week, so come back next week because we're going to continue the series. Next week, we're going to look at some assumptions that we make about the will of God. Some of them are accurate, some not so much. We're going to take a look at that. If you're not in a, uh, a life group yet uh, that's going to be studying more uh, throughout the week, it's still time to get connected with, with one. You can go online and find a group, or uh, Kim Whetstone, our, tra- our spiritual formation pastor, will be in the back uh, and uh, on the east side of the lobby. You can go talk with her. She'll help you find a group. I think it's going to be really good. Also, you can get the discussion guides online right now on our website. So we're going to do this for the next six weeks. Uh, it's it's going to be great. I hope you'll be involved with it during the week, not just on Sunday. Okay? So uh, have, a great, have a great Sunday. Don't get too sweaty out there. It's going to be a hot one. And uh, come back next week. We'll continue this study. Let me pray for us. Now, Lord, I pray that as we, as we exit this building, that we, we recognize worship has really just begun for us. Uh, because it's all about how we live our lives every single day, the things we say, the things we do. Uh, All of it is an act of worship to you, the God who's done it all for us, who has graciously loved us and granted us life everlasting in Jesus. We worship you, Lord, in the truest way possible with our lives. And as we attempt to do that, may your hand of grace and strength rest on your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next Sunday.